Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky Part 2, Chapter 6 But as soon as she went out, he got up, latched the door, undid the parcel which Razumihin had brought in that evening and had tied up again, and began dressing. Strange to say, he seemed immediately to have become perfectly calm. Not a trace of his recent delirium, nor of the panic fear that had haunted him of late. It was the first moment of a strange, sudden calm. His movements were precise and definite. A firm purpose was evident in them. Today, today, he muttered to himself. He understood that he was still weak, but his intense spiritual concentration gave him strength and self-confidence. He hoped, moreover, that he would not fall down in the street. When he had dressed in entirely new clothes, he looked at the money lying on the table, and after a moment's thought, put it in his pocket. It was twenty-five rubles. He took also all the copper change from the ten rubles spent by Razumihin on the clothes. Then he softly unlatched the door, went out, slipped downstairs, and glanced in at the open kitchen door. Nastasia was standing with her back to him, blowing up the landlady's samovar. She heard nothing. Who would have dreamed of his going out, indeed? A minute later, he was in the street. It was nearly eight o'clock. The sun was setting. It was as stifling as before, but he eagerly drank in the stinking, dusty town air. His head felt rather dizzy. A sort of savage energy gleamed suddenly in his feverish eyes and his wasted, pale, and yellow face. He did not know and did not think where he was going. He had one thought only, that all this must be ended today, once for all, immediately. That he would not return home without it, because he would not go on living like that. How? With what to make an end? He had not an idea about it. He did not even want to think of it. He drove away thought. Thought tortured him. All he knew, all he felt, was that everything must be changed, one way or another. He repeated with desperate and immovable self-confidence and determination. From old habit, he took his usual walk in the direction of the haymarket. A dark-haired young man with a barrel organ was standing in the road in front of a little general shop and was grinding out a very sentimental song. He was accompanying a girl of fifteen who stood on the pavement in front of him. She was dressed up in a crinoline, a mantle, and a straw hat with a flame-colored feather in it, all very old and shabby. In a strong and rather agreeable voice, cracked and coarsened by street singing, she sang in hope of getting a copper from the shop. Raskolnikov joined two or three listeners, took out a five-kopeck piece, and put it in the girl's hand. She broke off abruptly on a sentimental high note, shouted sharply to the organ grinder, Come on! and both moved on to the next shop. Do you like street music? said Raskolnikov, 
addressing a middle-aged man standing idly by him. The man looked at him, startled and wondering. "'I love to hear singing to a street organ,' said Raskolnikov, and his manner seemed strangely out of keeping with the subject. "'I like it on cold, dark, damp autumn evenings. They must be damp.' when all the passers-by have pale, green, sickly faces. Or better still, when wet snow is falling straight down, when there's no wind. You know what I mean? And the street lamps shine through it. I don't know. Excuse me, muttered the stranger, frightened by the question and Raskolnikov's strange manner, and he crossed over to the other side of the street. Raskolnikov walked straight on and came out at the corner of the haymarket, where the huckster and his wife had talked with Lizaveta, but they were not there now. Recognizing the place, he stopped, looked round, and addressed a young fellow in a red shirt who stood gaping before a corn chandler's shop. "'Isn't there a man who keeps a booth with his wife at this corner?' "'All sorts of people keep booths here,' answered the young man." glancing superciliously at Raskolnikov. "'What's his name?' "'What he was christened.' "'Aren't you a Zaraisky man, too? Which province?' The young man looked at Raskolnikov again. "'It's not a province, Your Excellency, but a district. Graciously forgive me, Your Excellency.' "'Is that a tavern at the top there?' "'Yes, it's an eating-house,' and there's a billiard-room, and you'll find princesses there, too. La, la! Raskolnikov crossed the square. In that corner there was a dense crowd of peasants. He pushed his way into the thickest part of it, looking at the faces. He felt an unaccountable inclination to enter into conversation with people. But the peasants took no notice of him. They were all shouting in groups together. He stood and thought a little, and took a turning to the right in the direction of V. He had often crossed that little street, which turns at an angle, leading from the marketplace to Sadovi Street. Of late, he had often felt drawn to wander about this district, when he felt depressed, that he might feel more so. Now he walked along, thinking of nothing. At that point there is a great block of buildings, entirely let out in dram-shops and eating-houses. Women were continually running in and out, bareheaded, and in their indoor clothes. Here and there they gathered in groups on the pavement, especially about the entrances to various festive establishments in the lower stories. From one of these, a loud din, sounds of singing, the tinkling of a guitar, and shouts of merriment floated into the street. A crowd of women were thronging round the door. Some were sitting on the steps, others on the pavement, others were standing talking. A drunken soldier, smoking a cigarette, was walking near them in the road, swearing. He seemed to be trying to find his way somewhere, but had forgotten where. One beggar was quarreling with another, and a man dead drunk was lying right across the road. Raskolnikov joined the throng of women, who were talking in husky voices. They were bareheaded, 
and wore cotton dresses and goatskin shoes. They were women of forty, and some not more than seventeen. Almost all had blackened eyes. He felt strangely attracted by the singing and all the noise and uproar in the saloon below. Someone could be heard within, dancing frantically, marking time with his heels to the sounds of the guitar, and of a thin falsetto voice singing a jaunty air. He listened intently, gloomily, and dreamily, bending down at the entrance and peeping inquisitively in from the pavement. "'Oh, my handsome soldier, don't beat me for nothing,' trilled the thin voice of the singer." Raskolnikov felt a great desire to make out what he was singing, as though everything depended on that. "'Shall I go in?' he thought. "'They are laughing. From drink. Shall I get drunk?' "'Won't you come in?' one of the women asked him. Her voice was still musical, and less thick than the others. She was young and not repulsive, the only one of the group. "'Why?' She's pretty, he said, drawing himself up and looking at her. She smiled, much pleased at the compliment. You're very nice looking yourself, she said. Isn't he thin, though, observed another woman in a deep bass. Have you just come out of a hospital? They're all generals' daughters, it seems, but they have all snub noses interposed a tipsy peasant with a sly smile on his face, wearing a loose coat. See how jolly they are. Go along with you. I'll go, sweetie. And he darted down into the saloon below. Raskolnikov moved on. I say, sir, the girl shouted after him. What is it? She hesitated. I'll always be pleased to spend an hour with you, kind gentleman, but now I feel shy. Give me six kopecks for a drink, there's a nice young man. Raskolnikov gave her what came first, fifteen kopecks. Ah, what a good-natured gentleman. What's your name? Ask for Duclida. Well, that's too much, one of the women observed, shaking her head at Duclida. I don't know how you can ask like that. I believe I should drop with shame. Raskolnikov looked curiously at the speaker. She was a pockmarked wench of thirty, covered with bruises, with her upper lip swollen. She made her criticism quietly and earnestly. Where is it, thought Raskolnikov, where is it I've read that someone condemned to death says or thinks an hour before his death, that if he had to live on some high rock, on such a narrow ledge that he'd only room to stand, and the ocean, everlasting darkness, everlasting solitude, everlasting tempest around him, if he had to remain standing on a square yard of space all his life, a thousand years, eternity, it were better to live so, than to die at once. Only to live, to live, and live. Life, whatever it may be. How true it is. Good God, how true. Man is a vile creature. 
and vile is he who calls him vile for that, he added a moment later. He went into another street. Bah, the Palais de Cristal. Razumihin was just talking of the Palais de Cristal. But what on earth was it I wanted? Yes, the newspapers. Zosimov said he'd read it in the papers. Have you the papers? he asked, going into a very spacious and positively clean restaurant consisting of several rooms, which were, however, rather empty. Two or three people were drinking tea, and in a room further away were sitting four men drinking champagne. Raskolnikov fancied that Zamyatov was one of them, but he could not be sure at that distance. "'What if it is?' he thought. "'Will you have vodka?' asked the waiter. "'Give me some tea, and bring me the papers, the old ones, for the last five days, and I'll give you something.' "'Yes, sir. Here's today's. No vodka?' The newspapers and the tea were brought. Raskolnikov sat down and began to look through them. Oh, damn. These are the items of intelligence. An accident on a staircase, spontaneous combustion of a shopkeeper from alcohol, a fire in Pisky, a fire in the Petersburg Quarter, another fire in the Petersburg Quarter, and another fire in the Petersburg Quarter. Ah, here it is. He found at last what he was seeking, and began to read it. The lines danced before his eyes, but he read it all, and began eagerly seeking later editions in the following numbers. His hands shook with nervous impatience as he turned the sheets. Suddenly, someone sat down beside him at his table. He looked up. It was the head clerk Zamyatov, looking just the same, with the rings on his fingers and the watch-chain, with the curly black hair parted and pomaded, with the smart waistcoat, rather shabby coat, and doubtful linen. He was in a good humor. At least he was smiling very gaily and good-humoredly. His dark face was rather flushed from the champagne he had drunk. "'What? You here?' he began in surprise speaking as though he'd known him all his life. Why, Razumihin told me only yesterday you were unconscious. How strange. And you know I've been to see you. Raskolnikov knew he would come up to him. He laid aside the papers and turned to Zamyatov. There was a smile on his lips, and a new shade of irritable impatience was apparent in that smile. I know you have, he answered. I've heard it. You looked for my sock. And you know Razumihin has lost his heart to you. He says you've been with him to Luisa Ivanovna's. You know, the woman you tried to befriend, for whom you winked to the explosive lieutenant, and he would not understand. Do you remember? How could he fail to understand? It was quite clear, wasn't it? What a hothead he is. The explosive one? No, your friend Razumihin. You must have a jolly life, Mr. Zamyatov. Entrance free to the most agreeable places. Who's been pouring champagne into you? We've just been having a drink together. You talk about pouring it into me. By way of a fee, 
You profit by everything, Raskolnikov laughed. It's all right, my dear boy, he added, slapping Zamyatov on the shoulder. I'm not speaking from temper, but in a friendly way, for sport, as that workman of yours said when he was scuffing with Dmitri in the case of the old woman. How do you know about it? Perhaps I know more about it than you do. How strange you are. I am sure you are still very unwell. You oughtn't to have come out. Oh, do I seem strange to you? Yes. What are you doing, reading the papers? Yes. There's a lot about the fires. No, I am not reading about the fires. Here, he looked mysteriously at Zamyatov. His lips were twisted again in a mocking smile. No, I am not reading about the fires, he went on, winking at Zamyatov. But confess now, my dear fellow, you're awfully anxious to know what I am reading about. I'm not in the least. Mayn't I ask a question? Why do you keep on— Listen, you are a man of culture and education. I was in the sixth class at the gymnasium, said Zamyatov, with some dignity. Sixth class! Ah, my cock-sparrow! With your parting and your rings, you are a gentleman of fortune. Foo! What a charming boy! Here Raskolnikov broke into a nervous laugh right in Zamyatov's face. The latter drew back, more amazed than offended. Foo! How strange you are! Zamyatov repeated very seriously. I can't help thinking you are still delirious. I am delirious. You are fibbing, my cock-sparrow. So, I am strange. You find me curious, do you? Yes, curious. Shall I tell you what I was reading about, what I was looking for? See what a lot of papers I've made them bring me. Suspicious, eh? Well, what is it? You prick up your ears? How do you mean, prick up my ears? I'll explain that afterwards. But now, my boy, I declare to you, no, better. I confess, no, that's not right either. I make a deposition, and you take it. I depose that I was reading, that I was looking and searching. He screwed up his eyes and paused. I was searching and came here on purpose to do it. For news of the murder of the old pawnbroker woman, he articulated at last, almost in a whisper, bringing his face exceedingly close to the face of Zamyatov. Zamyatov looked at him steadily, without moving or drawing his face away. What struck Zamyatov afterwards as the strangest part of it all was that silence followed for exactly a minute, and that they gazed at one another all the while. "'What if you have been reading about it?' he cried at last, perplexed and impatient. "'That's no business of mine. What of it?' "'The same old woman,' Raskolnikov went on in the same whisper, not heeding Zamyatov's explanation, "'about whom you were talking in the police office, you remember,' when I fainted. Well, do you understand now? 
What do you mean, understand? What? Zamyatov brought out, almost alarmed. Raskolnikov's set and earnest face was suddenly transformed, and he suddenly went off into the same nervous laugh as before, as though utterly unable to restrain himself. And in one flash he recalled with extraordinary vividness of sensation a moment in the recent past, that moment when he stood with the axe behind the door, while the latch trembled and the men outside swore and shook it, and he had a sudden desire to shout at them, to swear at them, to put out his tongue at them, to mock them, to laugh and laugh and laugh. "'You are either mad or—' began Zemyatov, and he broke off, as though stunned by the idea that had suddenly flashed into his mind. Or, or what? What? Come, tell me. Nothing, said Zamyatov, getting angry. It's all nonsense. Both were silent. After his sudden fit of laughter, Raskolnikov became suddenly thoughtful and melancholy. He put his elbow on the table and leaned his head on his hand. He seemed to have completely forgotten Zamyatov. The silence lasted for some time. "'Why don't you drink your tea? It's getting cold,' said Zamyatov. "'What? Tea? Oh, yes.' Raskolnikov sipped the glass, put a morsel of bread in his mouth, and suddenly, looking at Zamyatov, seemed to remember everything— and pulled himself together. At the same moment, his face resumed its original mocking expression. He went on drinking tea. "'There have been a great many of these crimes lately,' said Zamyatov. "'Only the other day I read in the Moscow news that a whole gang of false coiners had been caught in Moscow. It was a regular society. They used to forge tickets.' "'Oh, but it was a long time ago.' I read about it a month ago, Raskolnikov answered calmly. So you consider them criminals, he added, smiling. Of course they are criminals. They, they are children, simpletons, not criminals. Why, half a hundred people meeting for such an object? What an idea! Three would be too many and then they want to have more faith in one another than in themselves. One has only to blab in his cups, and it all collapses. Simpletons. They engaged untrustworthy people to change the notes. What a thing to trust to a casual stranger. Well, let us suppose that these simpletons succeed, and each makes a million, and what follows for the rest of their lives. Each is dependent on the others, for the rest of his life. Better hang oneself at once. And they did not know how to change the notes, either. The man who changed the notes took five thousand rubles, and his hands trembled. He counted the first four thousand, but did not count the fifth thousand. He was in such a hurry to get the money into his pocket and run away. Of course, he roused suspicion. And the whole thing came to a crash through one fool— is it possible? That his hands trembled, observed Zamyatov. Yes, that's quite possible. 
That, I feel quite sure, is possible. Sometimes one can't stand things. Can't stand that? Why, could you stand it then? I couldn't. For the sake of a hundred roubles to face such a terrible experience? To go with false notes into a bank where it's their business to spot that sort of thing? No, I should not have the face to do it. Would you? Raskolnikov had an intense desire again to put his tongue out. Shivers kept running down his spine. I should do it quite differently, Raskolnikov began. This is how I would change the notes. I'd count the first thousand three or four times backwards and forwards, looking at every note, and then I'd set to the second thousand. I'd count that halfway through, and then hold some fifty-ruble note to the light, then turn it, then hold it to the light again, to see whether it was a good one. I'm afraid, I would say. A relation of mine lost twenty-five roubles the other day through a false note. And then I'd tell them the whole story. And after I began counting the third, no, excuse me, I would say. I fancy I made a mistake in the seventh hundred, in that second thousand. I'm not sure. And so I would give up the third thousand, and go back to the second, and so on to the end. And when I had finished, I'd pick out one from the fifth, and one from the second thousand, and take them again to the light, and ask again, change them, please, and put the clerk into such a stew that he would not know how to get rid of me. When I'd finished and had gone out, I'd come back. No, excuse me, and ask for some explanation. That's how I'd do it. Foo, what terrible things you say, said Zamyatov, laughing. But all that is only talk. I dare say, when it came to deeds, you'd make a slip. I believe that even a practiced, desperate man cannot always reckon on himself, much less you and I. To take an example near home, that old woman murdered in our district. The murderer seems to have been a desperate fellow. He risked everything in open daylight, was saved by a miracle. But his hands shook, too. He did not succeed in robbing the place. He couldn't stand it. That was clear from the... Raskolnikov seemed offended. Clear? Why don't you catch him, then? he cried, maliciously jibing at Zamyatov. Well, they will catch him. Who? You? Do you suppose you could catch him? You've a tough job. A great point for you is whether a man is spending money or not. If he had no money and suddenly begins spending, he must be the man, so that any child can mislead you. The fact is, they always do that, though, answered Zamyatov. A man will commit a clever murder at the risk of his life, and then at once he goes drinking in a tavern. They are caught spending money. They are not all as cunning as you are. You wouldn't go to a tavern, of course. Raskolnikov frowned and looked steadily at Zamyatov. You seem to enjoy the subject and would like to know how I should behave in that case, too, he added with displeasure. I should like to, Zamyatov answered firmly and seriously. Somewhat too much earnestness began to appear in his words and looks. 
Very much. Very much. All right, then. This is how I should behave. Raskolnikov began, again bringing his face close to Zamyatov's, again staring at him and speaking in a whisper, so that the latter positively shuddered. This is what I should have done. I should have taken the money and jewels. I should have walked out of there and have gone straight to some deserted place with fences round it, and scarcely anyone to be seen, some kitchen garden or place of that sort. I should have looked out beforehand some stone weighing a hundredweight or more, which had been lying in the corner from the time the house was built. I would lift that stone. There would be sure to be a hollow under it, and I would put the jewels and money in that hole. Then I'd roll the stone back so that it would look as before, would press it down with my foot and walk away. And, for a year or two, three maybe, I would not touch it. And, well, they could search. There'd be no trace. You are a madman, said Zamyatov, and for some reason he too spoke in a whisper and moved away from Raskolnikov, whose eyes were glittering. He had turned fearfully pale, and his upper lip was twitching and quivering. He bent down as close as possible to Zamyatov, and his lips began to move without uttering a word. This lasted for half a minute. He knew what he was doing, but could not restrain himself. The terrible word trembled on his lips, like the latch on that door. In another moment, it will break out. In another moment, he will let it go. He will speak out. And what if it was I who murdered the old woman and Lizaveta? he said suddenly, and realized what he had done. Zamyatov looked wildly at him and turned white as the tablecloth. His face wore a contorted smile. But is it possible? he brought out faintly. Raskolnikov looked wrathfully at him. Own up that you believed it. Yes, you did. Not a bit of it. I believe it less than ever now, Zamyatov cried hastily. I've caught my cock-sparrow, so you did believe it before, if now you believe it less than ever. Not at all, cried Zamyatov, obviously embarrassed. Have you been frightening me so as to lead up to this? You don't believe it, then. What were you talking about behind my back when I went out of the police office? And why did the explosive lieutenant question me after I fainted? Hey there! he shouted to the waiter, getting up and taking his cap. How much? Thirty kopecks, the latter replied, running up. And here's twenty kopecks for vodka. See what a lot of money! He held out his shaking hand to Zamyatov with notes in it. Red notes and blue, twenty-five rubles. Where did I get them? And where did my new clothes come from? You know I had not a kopeck. You've cross-examined my landlady, I'll be bound. Well, that's enough. Assez cause till we meet again. <laughs>